Let us begin. So let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning with the amazing spectacle that you put over Mount Shasta that we can see you revealed in the things that you have made, your greatness and your majesty and your awesomeness. We thank you for the chance to talk about your church this morning, where it has succeeded and where those have gone wrong have erred. We pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment so that we can follow in the footsteps of the wise and the godly and avoid the pitfalls of those in error. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, you all are going to wish you missed today. Because, <laughs> well, so we were going to be moving on in, in uh, the history of the church. We had a, when we started, we had a bit of an outline, Hoyt and I, uh, and, you know, there are many, many places where I've wanted to deviate from that outline and, uh, and places where I felt like it, was, it would be good for us to, to camp a little longer. And, and so today is one of those days when, when we're going to deviate a little bit from the outline. And uh, we talked about the first Great Awakening last week and... Uh, the Wesleys and Jonathan Edwards and so on. And, and, that, and it is a, a critically important uh, event. Uh, but to, it, it eventually, well, we'll get to that, what it eventually does. Today we're, I wanted to talk about the second Great Awakening. And I found myself in preparation for that, just going further and further and back in time and digging more and more into uh, just philosophy in general because of the pitfalls that it creates and and the, the results that it's going to have, especially on the Second Great Awakening. And so you're going to get a little bit of a dose of philosophy today, unfortunately. But uh, I think it's necessary, and ultimately I think it'll be helpful in understanding where we are as a church today. So please bear with me. Um, so, where I wanted to, to start off today was with the Enlightenment. And we are all here in this room and in the society that we are in. We are all children of the Enlightenment. When we talk about the modern age and when we talk about postmodernism, the modern age is the age of the Enlightenment. And postmodernism is the, 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 the growth of society in a direction that abandons the achievements of the Enlightenment. And, and so, in this sense, I think it'll help us understand a little bit more about what's going on in the world today, but it's also going to help us understand the, both of the Great Awakenings. Um, I'm going to say some bad things about the Enlightenment. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think it's important to recognize and just say right up front that there are good things about it too. That like 
the early church recognizing that the Greek philosophers hit on some truths, just not the full truth, so too will the Enlightenment hit on some truths, but not the full truth. Also, they will reject truth in many cases as well. So it, there is a tension there. So what then is the Enlightenment? Well, the Enlightenment is going to flow out of two different things. First is the Renaissance and the Reformation, both of which are roughly concurrent. And the Renaissance was a, it literally, the word Renaissance literally means rebirth. What is it the rebirth of? Well, throughout the Middle Ages, the learning, the high level of learning that had been achieved by the Greeks and the Romans, and believe me, we will get to the Second Great Awakening, uh, had been lost in the Middle Ages. And the Renaissance, for a variety of reasons, is the, re the, the resultant rediscovery of all those things which had been lost. So the philosophers, the mathematicians, the artists, all of that was lost, and in the Renaissance it is rediscovered. It, there is a rebirth of all of that learning. At the same time, and concurrent with that is the Reformation, which we've been talking about. And much of the Reformation, there are connections to what was going on in the Renaissance. So there were rediscoveries of ancient Christian writers, Greek and Roman Christian writers. There were rediscoveries of other aspects of the church, ancient Greek texts of the Bible, so that an accurate reconstruction of the Greek New Testament can be built, and that then will become the basis for translations into vernacular languages like English. So these, these things are all important steps. Then comes the Enlightenment, and it's building on these things, but it's, it's moving now past just a rebirth of Greek and Roman learning to a new phase of human intellectual development. And it really, in a lot of ways, begins with the French philosopher René Descartes. And has anyone ever heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am? I mean, we should all somewhat be familiar with that phrase. Well, that, that came from René Descartes. And Descartes was trying to sum up how he can be certain that knowledge is true. And so the phrase in Latin is cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Now, right off the bat, what is wrong with that statement? The certainty of his knowledge is focused on himself and not on any connection to God. There is no place for revelation in Descartes' view of knowledge. In fact, when you think about it, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, to say, I think, therefore, I am, that actually is, is what? It is. It's actually Gnosticism reborn. Remember, Gnosticism 
teaches that the physical world is corrupt, but the world of the mind, the world of the spirit, that's the pure and good reality. Physical matter is evil. So for, for Descartes to say that he is certain that things are true because he thinks them, he thinks and therefore he is, he is rejecting physical matter and focusing all of his certainty on the internal spiritual aspect of himself. It's essentially a Gnostic perspective. So, but Descartes is going to kick off this this new uh, quest for knowledge. And almost immediately, this quest for knowledge, Hoyt, you got to forgive me, I'm way off track. (laughs) So, So almost immediately, though, this this quest for uh, knowledge and certainty is going to split into two groups. One is going to follow Descartes, and they're going to be called the rationalists. And they are going to assert that simply by thinking and simply by the employment of reason, can they reach truth? And there are going to be people that are going to be after the same things that Descartes is, but they are going to disagree with him in terms of how to get there. And they are going to say only through the experiences, only through the use of our senses, can we then employ our reason to reach truth. So you have the rationalists on one hand and you have what we call the empiricists on the other. What is missing from both of those? God. But not some of them will even say yes, God exists. But what's really missing is revelation. So there is no place in their quest for truth for revelation. Who is, when we th- think back to the book of Hebrews, what is the greatest form of revelation? Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. So if there is no place for any kind of revelation in enlightenment philosophy, then ultimately there is no place for Jesus Christ. Yes, Kevin. That's a good observation. We're going to circle back to that at the beginning when we get to the Second Great Awakening. You're going to see how that's going to manifest itself. So, uh, did you have a question? Well, yeah, I mean, the New Age movement is an essentially Gnostic movement as well. So I don't know that New Agers are going around saying, oh yes, we are direct descendants from Rene Descartes. But what he initiated has ultimately morphed into 
or one of its many manifestations, I should say, is, is New Age thinking. So, but yes, they, they would be very comfortable with things, with what Descartes has to say for himself, you know, so. Um, going further, uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant was a, a German philosopher and he is going to push what Descartes says even further. And he is going to say, sapere aude, which is Latin for dare to know. Like, be brave and know things for yourself. In other words, he's saying, be courageous and come to your own truth. Where is the place for revelation in that assertion? There is no place for revelation in that assertion. And going even, and, and he is in the, the line of the Cartesians where he is, he is a rationalist. At the same time as Kant, the manifestation of, of the empiricists is a, a gentleman named Hollenbeck, and he is, or Hallbach, and he is going to say that man is unhappy because he is ignorant of nature. Because he has incompletely used his senses to study nature, man has not come to complete happiness. Where is the place for God in that perspective? There is none. So that is the, the, the philosophical milieu in which <clears throat> the first great awakening is going to arise. And it's going to arise as a response to that, not in agreement to it, but in a rejection of those enlightenment principles. And let me just pause there before we talk about the first great awakening again in the context of those principles and just point out that the fruit of those philosophers 300 years ago, is being borne out today. Dare to know what your gender is. Dare to know what your truth is. You know, these, the, 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 the environment that was created by these philosophers has de progressed and degraded to where we are today, but there is a direct line that connects them to where we are today. So those, but the, there is a rupture though between what they taught and where we are today. And I just, I wanna digress for a minute just to give a little clarity to that. And that is this, they were products and advocates of what we call modernity, that there is an objective truth, and that objective truth can be achieved or found or discovered by reason and the use of our senses, but that through the employment of those things, truth can be found. We are now in a world that we call postmodern, and in that case, there is no more truth to be found the truth is whatever you make it to be. So that's where the phrase postmodern comes from. Does that make any sense? 
So we have moved past, it's not that we are not modern people living in a modern age. It's, it's modern with a capital M. It's, it's the, we have moved past the Enlightenment. We are no longer in an Enlightenment-influenced world. We are in a world where truth is completely relative. That was not the case back then. Truth was not relative, but it just had no place for revelation in it. So that, that's where it was. That's not the way it is now. Okay, so let's talk about how does this impact the first great awakening. <clears throat> and the best place to look for that is Jonathan Edwards. And I'm just going to recapitulate him what Hoyt said about him just a little bit, and then we'll get into the Second Great Awakening. But some of what Edward, uh, the, Edwards rejects the Enlightenment insofar as there is absolutely a fundamental place for revelation in truth. It is the foundation of truth. When I say revelation, what am I talking about at this point? Jesus, but how do we know about Jesus? From the Bible. So, Scripture is our contact point with revelation. And who, how did, who, you know, God works through, who, who authored Scripture? God, the Holy Spirit did. So, we are encountering God when we encounter Scripture. So, it is revelation of God to us, of Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> Edwards is going to not just affirm that, but I mean, that is the central point of what he's teaching. One of his great sermons, he preached it the same year that he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you will, turn, you can turn, or I'll just read it to you, to Matthew 16, 17. I should turn there myself. And he is going to build a sermon out of this passage that is a rejection excuse me, of those enlightenment principles. He says, <clears throat> And Jesus answered him, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he is, Edwards is taking that verse and he is then building out of that an acknowledgement that the rationalists and the empiricists are wrong. He's saying, blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't discover the truth through flesh and blood. You discovered it because of the Father in heaven. That God had grace on Peter and enabled Peter to find the truth. So the source of truth, that quest for truth, truth was initiated by God, not by any work of Peter, not by his rational, reasonable ability, nor by any investigation with his senses. And Edwards is going to pound on this principle. And this is really a reflection of his affirmation that it's only through the grace of God can we be redeemed. It is only through God's grace, only through his 
overwhelming our sinful nature, maybe that's not the right word, but through His grace enabling us to believe rightly in Jesus Christ. And so he is, by, by focusing in on that verse and building his sermon around that, you really see that he is deliberately rejecting those enlightenment principles. Um, <clears throat> it's through that that Edwards is going to really light up the, sec- the first great awakening, boy, that was a mistake. So he, you know, he is going to awaken people to the need to go to the scriptures and to accept Christ and their need to be redeemed by God, that they cannot do this for themselves. Because at this point, when Edwards is around, the fires of the Reformation have dimmed. It, it has been... It has been quenched by two twin arrows. One is rationalism, the Enlightenment, but also by the dagger of ritual and routine. People just did what they did. The fire had gone out. And so Edwards and others in the First Great Awakening were we're stoking those fires back up. And he was looking to, to, to restore the fervor that had been present before in the Reformation. And all of this that he had was scriptural based. And many criticized what he was doing, saying that these conversions that are coming through his preaching are not authentic conversions. These, this is just too much. It's too much. And so he preached another one of his great sermons. This was further into the Second Great Awakening. And he structures this around 1 John 4, 1 through 21. And in that, he lays out five principles by which a conversion can be authenticated to whatever degree it can actually be authenticated. So if you look on the second page there, uh, there's five lowercase letters down in the sec- lower half of the page. And those are the five principles. And I've broken it out with where out of 1 John he is drawing those principles. So he says, and the reason I'm bringing this up just before I get read those, is you're going to see how this is going to contrast mightily with the Second Great Awakening. So I'm, I'm trying to just set the table here to show how these are very, very different events. So Edwards is going to say, A, the conviction that Jesus was the incarnate, virgin-born, and crucified Son of God and the Redeemer of human, sinful humans. So that right there is, if you are not convicted of that, whatever it else you're experiencing, you're not really a Christian. So you need to affirm that right there. Incidentally, affirming those things is what is affirmed in the Nicene and Chalcedonian Creed. And Edwards was very aware of those creeds. And so he is, the very first thing that needs to be done is you need to affirm these truths that have been central to the church from its beginning. Affirm 
the doctrines of the church. Second, a growing disinterest in the things of the world, both the fleshly lusts and the pursuits of appetites. This is accompanied by a growing interest in things holy. Third, an increasing appreciation and valuing of the scriptures. And you can read along in 1 John where he's drawing on these. A truthful view of things pertaining to God, sin, and ourselves. And lastly, a growing love for God and fellow man. Does that sound alien to our church? No, absolutely not. <clears throat> Edwards will go further, and in other sermons, he's really going to zero in on Galatians 5.22, and he's going to say that true religion in great part consists of the whole, in holy affections. What he's, the, the, I mean, they spoke a little differently back then. So when he says affections, what he's really talking about are the virtues that are imparted on us by the Holy Spirit. And, and Galatians 5.22 is really where he's looking to see what those are. In other words, it's what we call the what? The fruit of the Spirit. So he's saying an authentic conversion is going to be a fruit-producing conversion. <clears throat> so, and this is no different from what Whitfield is preaching. And you know, there are some differences between what John Wesley and, and Edwards and Whitfield are preaching. But in, in, in most cases, he's, they're, they're all in line. They, they have some minor but significant disagreements. Uh, but in, in general, they would all affirm these things. These are hallmarks of the first great awakening. So now let's move into the second great awakening and talk about how things are a wee bit different. Any questions before we do? Yes. No, he's saying that is the process of, I mean, yes. I mean, yeah, sorry. I, I got my, my, what? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's why I said no. I'm, I mean, I wasn't saying no, like there's no sanctification. I meant no, he's not implying that. I'm saying no, that's the point, is sanctification. So he is absolutely affirming the centrality of sanctification in the life of the believer. And that the proof of a conversion is the fruit born in the life of a believer. And that fits right in with John 15 and so on and so forth. I mean, this is a central theme of not just the New Testament, but all of Scripture. <clears throat> but the second great awakening is going to take a different approach. <clears throat> and I'm just going to tell you guys now, by and large, I'm not a fan of the second great awakening. Even though... The way we do church in America, by and large, very much is a product of the Second Great Awakening. We, we do church 
when we come in and we sing songs and then there is a sermon, that's really the template that was set down in the Second Great Awakening. Now, we're breaking things up a little bit by having some songs at the end. I mean, that's actually breaking the mold a little bit. But that template that church in America uses and has exported all over the world, that is one of the legacies of the Second Great Awakening. So church did look differently. I mean, they still sung, but there was a different order of things and a different emphasis on things in earlier churches. For example, how often do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Once a month? Once a quarter? Prior to the Second Great Awakening, even in Edwards Church, it was customary to do it every gathering. So the, the, the devaluation of the sacraments is a product of the Second Great Awakening. We'll get there. So, <clears throat> okay, any other questions? Okay, Second Great Awakening it is. Uh, so just as the first awakening is in many ways a response to currents and movements within the Enlightenment, so too will the second great awakening be a response to the currents and movements within the Enlightenment. And in particular, well first let me back up. When does the Second Great Awakening happen? It's roughly between 1810 and 1850. And it's really at its peak from about 1825 to 1840. So I didn't put those dates in there and I should have, but that's really when it's at its height. Um, and so what, what's going on in America at that time. Well, the Civil, the, the Civil War. The Revolutionary War has been won. So now you have an awakening in the nation of America, not the colonies. That's a significant difference. And I'll explain how that difference is relevant in a minute. But also now, the colonies are expanding beyond the initial 13 colonies, which were all generally coastal regions moving beyond the Appalachian Mountains and now is becoming a true frontier nation. And so right off the bat, one of the significant differences that you will see in the Second Great Awakening is that even though it had some manifestations in the old colonial centers, especially in New York, by and large, it is an animal of the frontier. So it is going to be beyond the Appalachians. The hotbeds of it are going to be Kentucky, Tennessee, and New York. Not New York City, but New York beyond the Adirondacks, beyond the Hudson River, and really specifically along the Erie Canal. Why is that? Because you're going to have a constant flow of uprooted settlers moving along those areas. The same thing is true in Kentucky and Tennessee where the main route of settlement 
west of the Appalachians was the Cumberland Gap. And from there, people could get to the Tennessee River and through Kentucky to the Ohio River and then continue west and settle. So the, the, the lines of settlement are along the rivers and the canal. So you're going to have this constant turmoil of people churning through these regions without necessarily having their roots put down. So you have people looking for stability. And into that, you also have some new ideas. So one of those ideas is in the Enlightenment, the triumph of the empiricists. So they are going to, for a season, become the dominant strain of the Enlightenment. What are the empiricists again? They're the people who believe the truth is found through experience and through the senses. And in particular, this era is what we call romanticism. You may have heard this term. These are the romantics. Romanticism is going to take the experience aspect and put it on steroids and say, really, the way to truth is through your emotions, not through just experiencing things with your senses or using your reason to get to truth. It's going to be an experience. It's going to be an emotional quest for truth. When you have reached an emotional high, you are close to the truth. And you will see in a minute how this is going to play into the second great awakening. Also, at the same time, in America, there is now this new market revolution, which is teaching that and this isn't necessarily a, this isn't a bad thing, but when it becomes a basis for theology, it's a bad thing. But they're teaching that if you work hard, if you put in the time and put in the work, you can succeed financially. In other words, if you go out into the frontier and you build yourself a farm, you can become a successful person, Right? I mean, that's the mentality. You, you have control of your destiny. That mentality is going to be taken up by the preachers. And that is going to become the essence of the second great awakening. So let's talk about it now, theologically. And as a window into the theology of the second great awakening, the easiest place to go is the works of Charles Finney who was the, the preacher par excellence of the Second Great Awakening. He was the, the Edward and the Whitfield and the Wesley of the Second Great Awakening, all rolled into one. And so when we read things that he says, you know that this isn't reflecting just his thought, but a great many others as well. So before we get into Finney specifically, any questions? Okay, um, so Finney, if you look down towards the bottom of that page, he is going to say that, uh, well, first, revival in Finney's approach is not a function of a miraculous movement of God. Did Edwards believe that it is? Absolutely. God moves on the believer, and 
enables us to believe rightly in Christ. We are so sinful prior to our encounter with God that we are unable to believe properly about God. But through God's grace, he makes it possible for us to believe properly about God. That's the irresistible grace in the, what is it, ultip? Ultip, tulip, I know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, uh, sorry, it's tulip, I was trying to make a joke. Um, thank you. <laughs> I got to cut the sternness somehow. Um, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, so, you know, the first great awakening in Edwards, it, Conversion is a miraculous thing. It is a miraculous act of God. But to Finney and to others in, this, in the second awakening, it is a result of tactic, strategy, conditioning, and planning. Does that sound different? Yeah, a little different. So Finney himself is going to say that uh, he says... Revival was purely philosophical result, result of the right use of constituted means as much so as any effect produced by the application of means. So if you put someone in the right situation and condition them appropriately, you will get the right response from them. And so what was done by him and by others is they would get people into these sorry, tents for days at a time. This, this is the age of the camp revival meetings. And they would get people into these tents or into these outdoor spaces and they'd pack them in. And sometimes they'd have benches and sometimes they wouldn't. And they would preach and preach and then sing and sing and preach and preach and sing and sing until people were worn down after days. And then they would have a conversion experience. They even had what they call anxious benches, where people that just couldn't handle it had a bench up in the front where they could have the jitters and then run up and have their conversion experience. So this was <clears throat> a targeted and conditioned response to what was going on. They were winding people up. And they were looking to turn people loose and have them come and forgive me, Lord, you know. And for good or ill, you know, walking the aisle, as we, we say, that is a legacy of this. So, and I'm not saying that people can't walk the aisle and have a true conversion experience. But the expectation and the opportunity to do that comes from the culture that's going to come from the Second Great Awakening. So, uh, so Finney, right off the bat, where's the source of revelation? I mean, where's the place in revelation for what he's, he's talking about? Where is the place for God in what he's talking about? What he's really latching onto is that concept of provenient grace that Wesley had and he is corrupting it and pumping it up on steroids. So much so, so they, basically what he is arguing is that 
God has had grace on everybody when they're born to have free will and make their own decisions. So my job as Charles Finney, preacher of the Second Great Awakening, is to condition people to give the response that I want them to give. Because they have the free will, I'm going to convince them and condition them to do what I think they should do. And that's really where the Second Great Awakening goes. He has a sermon entitled, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Where is the role of the Holy Spirit in that? He says in that sermon, we have the power of free moral agency. We do not need to be altered in soul or body. We do not need to add to our minds any new principle. The new heart and the new spirit is not a constitutional change in our human nature. The change of heart Ezekiel spoke of is not miraculous. It is a choice we make to employ our abilities to God rather than self-gratification. The passage he's speaking, referring to as far as Ezekiel is uh, Ezekiel, I think, 18.31, where he says, you know, believers, go and get yourself a new heart. So he's taking that, that statement of go and get yourself a new heart, and he's saying, God's told us to do it, now I'm just going out and convincing these people to do it. But there's no work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. There is no <clears throat> work of atonement and justification. It is extreme hyper-Arminianism. I mean, I think there are good Arminians, but this is a very bad form of Arminianism. Uh, he goes so far as to even nearly reject justification in, in, the, in the cross. So he says there on the last page, he says, this view of revival was, con uh, I don't need to just read it. Um, he says that <clears throat> what the cross was, was not a blood atonement for our sins, but a statement by God of his high view of the law. That God thought so much of the law that he would send his son to sacrifice and fulfill it. And that what it really should do is, is provoke in us a love and a meekness and self-sacrifice to express our devotion of God based on that. That's Finney's view of the atonement. And he is the preacher par excellence of the Second Great Awakening. Does this sound different from the First Great Awakening? So as one of my old professors, one of, old professor, professor that I dearly love and that I, I interned with when I was in school, he would always say, First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, different. So if you come away with nothing today, come away with that. They are very, very, very different animals. And thankfully, our church today, theologically, we are descended from the first great awakening. We may not, you know, not all of us in here may affirm every single thing that Edward said, but by and large, we, what our church affirms is what Edward's taught. So what our church affirms is not what Charles Finney 
So, now there were positive, oh yes, go ahead. <clears throat> no denomination, like, he wasn't the founder of a denomination. He started off as Presbyterian, but, I mean, he, w he wasn't a founder of Presbyterian, but he basically ended up rejecting a lot of what Presbyterianism taught. Uh, I would say, I mean, there are strains of Presbyterians, there are strains of Baptists, there are strains of Methodists that all affirm that. Not all, you know, I mean, strains, not denominations. You know, it's not a, a monolithic thing. But his influence is peppered across many of the denominations here in America. Well, the Pentecostal movement's going to come later in what they call the Third Great Awakening. So, you know, yeah, I think some of, I think he, he, he built the flower box that that's going to sprout out of. But, I, you know, they're not looking and say, well, Finney said this, and so I'm following after him. But he, he, he created the ground for something like that to sprout out of. So, uh, and ultimately, I think theologically, uh, it's going to be a destructive movement. Culturally, there were many positive impacts of the Second Great Awakening. The abolition movement is going to be born out of the Second Great Awakening. The, the meetings that characterized the, the awakening were extraordinarily egalitarian. You had whites, you had whites who were American, you had whites who were fresh off the boat from who knows where, I mean, every culture from Europe. You had freed slaves, you had people who were still enslaved, enslaved present at the meetings. You had women prominently involved in the Second Great Awakening. So in terms of who participated, it was extremely accepting in a positive way. Finney himself went on to become the president of Overland College, which was the first school and the first college in America to admit women and African Americans. So, I mean, there's, you know, and he himself was an ardent abolitionist. So there were many positive things that flowed out of this as well, but in terms of the teachings of the church, which ultimately is what matters, are people having an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. What ultimately matters, it was not necessarily a positive force. Now, there were people who were genuinely converted out of it, and there were preachers in the midst of it who were truthful biblical preachers. So I'm not trying to paint every single person and every single thing with a negative brush, but the dominant strain of the revival was in many ways counterproductive theologically in terms of Christianity. Culturally, it had some very positive impacts. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag. And again, you know, churches today in America, by and large, still follow the template set by the Second Great Awakening.
it did have one other, and I'll just end with this, one other extraordinarily negative impact. And this was particularly the case in New York. Western New York came to be known as the burned out district because they had so many waves of revival burn through the area that after a while people were just exhausted. They had no gas left in the tank. And that, coupled with a strain of superstitious occultism that had been developing on the frontiers for the last 60 or 70 years, it was an undercurrent, but not a dominant thing, but still present, that those two things combined was a, a fertile garden for Joseph Smith and his pals to found Mormonism. So, you know, the initial claim of Joseph Smith, you know, when he had his supposed first encounter with the Heavenly Father, as they would call it, uh, he asked, which of the denominations are true? Because there's so many coming through, preaching so many different kinds of sermons that he was told none of them are true. They're all false. And ultimately, that's going to lead him to write his own revelation and reject just about every single Christian truth there is and found Mormonism, the Church of Latter-day Saints. So that is the... The Mormon church is a direct product of the Second Great Awakening. So, uh, in that way, it is still very much with us to this day. So, and I had planned on talking about some of the particulars of Mormonism, but I don't really have the time. I decided to talk about the Enlightenment instead, so I apologize. Yes. Yes. No, Romanticism is the movement within the Enlightenment that is going to elevate emotion as the, the avenue through which to describe truth. Uh, to, not to describe truth, but to discover truth. So, you know, what, what human experience you know, can be more powerful than romance, you know, the emotional high that romance brings. Well, that, that was an offshoot of the empiricist uh, strain of the Enlightenment, which said that truth is found through experience, that only through experiencing things can we truly know them, and only by experiencing things can we actually find truth. And so the, the romantics are going to go further and say only through emotion and the emotional experiences that we have will we be able to penetrate into truth. And so they are just called the romantics. And, the, you know, you've heard of many of them, like Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, Shelley, uh, Keats, they're all romantics. So... Uh, it's just a further outgrowth of the empiricist aspect of the Enlightenment. But the reason why I brought that up, maybe I didn't tie the knot firmly, was that's 
that's the, that's the context in which Finney is pursuing his revival. Is he is looking to wind people up and get an emotional high and then through that they will find the truth, which he says is Jesus Christ. So he is, rather than rejecting the points of the Enlightenment like Edwards did, he is building on the on the on a strain of the Enlightenment. So he is building on something that really has no place for revelation in it. Does that make sense? And you can see what happens because of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and again, <clears throat> now that we're in a postmodern age and people are questing for truth and they're being told that, you know, truth is what you make of it. So how do they contact? How do they come? How do they encounter truth? Well, experience is one of the easiest ways to contact truth. You have this, exp this emotional experience. How can that, what I felt, be wrong? You know what I'm, does that make sense? Like, how can what I felt in my heart be wrong? Or one possible way to express that today uh, that is affirming of, you know, homosexuality is love is love. You know, it's the same thing. So... But ultimately, we, our church, and the churches that have come before us and hopefully will be coming after us, Lord willing, the remnant, you know, will continue to affirm those truths of the Reformation, those truths that Jonathan Edwards and the other first great awakening preachers affirm, that it's only by the grace of God and through our encounter with the word in which Christ himself is revealed, will we be redeemed? So, and I'll just, I will end there. Any other questions? Okay, then I will end in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word in which your son is revealed to us. I pray that all of us will continue to encounter you through it, that we may study it and know it, that we will know you deeper and be more like you as we move through this life, that you will chip away our rough edges and conform us to the image of your Son. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen.